got to know all the tricks. Like, for example, if a woman's on top, she can't get pregnant. It's just gravity. Well, that's true. Everyone knows that. What goes up must come down. Money points ever. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please, uh, for this afternoon's feature attraction. From the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, welcome to Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan, and anybody who saw the Judd Apatow-produced Forgetting Sarah Marshall two years ago is familiar with British comedian Russell Brand's sort of daffy rocker character, Aldous Snow, who, refu- who actually resurfaced this weekend in the spinoff film Get Him to the Greek that opened nationwide and in Tuscaloosa. And that's also produced by Apatow and written and directed by Marshall director Nicholas Stoller. The film stars Jonah Hill, not reprising his role from that film, but instead playing a new one who is ordered by a record executive to retrieve snow in England and transport the washed-up rock star and party monster to Los Angeles to perform at the Greek theater to revive his career. And needless to say, that task is easier said than done. Now, Corey, we've previously discussed after MacGruber whether characters with mild popularity and limited exposure, whether or not they really deserve their own feature-length films, as is the case here with Aldous Snow. Now, if anybody has the power and the creativity to maybe make that work, it's Judd Apatow and his sort of band of talented writers and performers. And uh, Apatow, he's been a little cold lately, on kind of a cold streak after last year's critical and financial disappointments, Funny People, and Year One. Now, once again, he keeps a watchful eye over the talent involved as Stoller directs, a formula that previously worked quite well with Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Now, my question to you is, has Apatow finally hit out of his brief and sort of humorless slump with another surprise we can throw into that beloved mix with 40-year-old versions, super bad, and forgetting Sarah Marshall, or does the losing streak continue? I wouldn't say that the losing streak continues necessarily, though I do feel that Get Him to the Greek, uh, while very funny, is, is certainly less substantial than the four-year-old virgin uh, Superbad and forgetting Sarah Marshall, those examples you just listed. And I think that the seams are starting to show in the Apatow formula. Uh, This film feels somewhat rough around the edges, almost as if the the Apatow brand of of feel-good sentimentality that pops up near the end of the film was sort of shoehorned into this one. That being said, um, it is very, very funny. Uh, Oftentimes exceptionally so so i i i overall enjoyed getting to the greek even if i kind of feel like this one doesn't rise to par necessarily yeah uh i think that this movie's first half was on a roll mm-hmm. uh you're introduced to um these new characters in the apato universe in uh, jonah hill's character who for the first time in a while i think is fairly likable on screen I think in Superbad, Jonah Hill's character uh, was almost hateable. He was just kind of this vile kid, uh, foul-mouthed kid who didn't care much for his friends but instead cared uh, about furthering his own personal agenda and it didn't really matter what else happened. And Otherwise, he just wasn't very appealing and fun to be around. Uh, this time, he tones that way down, and uh, I think you kind of get a preview of that subtler Jonah Hill um, ability in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which I think is the best work he's done prior to get him to the Greek. Uh, But you have this new character and you're introduced uh, to more via this record company meeting uh, with record executive, uh, uh, what's his name, Uh, Sergio? Sergio. uh, Played by P. Diddy, Puff Daddy, 
Sean Combs. I don't know how he's billed for this movie. I think he's billed as Sean Combs. Okay, for, for the movies only. But uh, you, you sit around with them, and uh, Aziz Ansari's in there, and there are other, uh, a few other uh, funny funny people, another familiar face from Forgetting Sarah Marshall, the bartender in that, uh, is in this movie. Um, but I think, I, you know, the jokes that we hear throughout that scene and the setup of the movie is hilarious. I think that they kind of uh, paint this really... Uh, acerbic picture of uh, people who are running the music industry, that kind of thing, and the really horrible ideas they have uh, that they think people will like. I mean, they even play a track from uh, <laughs> what is supposedly like the hottest song that's out there. I forget the name of the artist. It's Chocolate Something, uh, and it's just it's it's obviously a hit, and everybody in the room likes it except for maybe Jonah Hill, who seems like the realist of the bunch. Um, but we're reintroduced to that old character, Aldous Snow through this extended sequence at the beginning, even before that record company scene, uh, through uh, what I actually like. You know, when I see movies and they do these news packages or they, you know, make these uh, magazine covers, they, they come up with uh -huh. fake networks and things like that. And here they're using the real thing. You see these Us magazine covers with Aldous Snow and his, his uh, lover, Jackie Q., played by Rose Byrne here, and it, it kind of chronicles his and her career and their relationship and how they broke up, setting up the movie and why he's kind of uh, fallen back into this uh, drug and alcohol-induced uh, stupor, I guess. But I really like that intro. You see, like, Access Hollywood and uh, CNN and other things, and it's really neat, and obviously Judd Apatow has a lot of friends, uh, and they're willing to do him a lot of favors, and that happens throughout the entire movie. And where that was self-indulgent and something like funny people and even knocked up with all of the E stuff, um, I thought that it kind of worked here because you've got a story about a celebrity. Sure. Uh, and that was the case with funny people too. But Corey, I mean, look, I I'm kind of with you. I think that this you could consider this minor apatow. Right. Um, but I think it's better than, say, uh, what was one of the uh, the slumpy movies? Uh, I haven't seen Year One, but I'm going to go ahead and say that this yeah, is better than Year it's One. It's certainly better than Year One. <laughs> yeah, uh, and maybe even better than, I don't know, I kind of like Drillbit Taylor too, but I think it's right there uh, during the first half with Forgetting Sarah Marshall, just in mm -hmm. terms of uh, how funny it is. Because, again, you've got uh, Jonah Hill, who is the, the straight man, so to speak, to Aldous Snow's funny guy. And I think he plays it very well. I think if Jonah Hill isn't just sort of rattling off all of these uh, hyper-specific uh, pop culture references and is just kind of throwing profanity wherever it might land, I think that's where he's failing. And I think here, uh, when he does, you know, he does infuse some of those references, uh, like the Lone Ranger comment <laughs> at the beginning of the Hamburglar thing, that's like, I think that yeah, that's yeah. what you would call like pure Jonah Hill. That's kind of like his wheelhouse, what he does. But when you let him act and just sort of roll with the story, I think it's a lot better. And, again, Russell Brand is incredibly appealing. Uh, he's funny in the first movie, and he's funny in this. But I just don't really know that, you, you know, in going back to the original question, does he really deserve his own feature film? Well, I'm not sure that this character... I found this character a lot more effective in, in smaller increments and in forgetting Sarah Marshall than I did in this entire movie. Um, and I don't know why that is exactly, but it just seems like when you start, I, I guess, expanding on this character and getting into his background, he becomes considerably less funny or less interesting. Um, I mean, you don't really spend too much time in the company of Aldous Snow in forgetting Sarah Marshall, but he's still easily the funniest thing in that movie. 
Um, and I guess it's because you get such smaller increments. So while I guess the idea of giving him a spinoff movie is in theory a good one, um, I don't know. Maybe it lessened the appeal of the character a little bit. But don't you think in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, why you do get him in smaller doses, uh, when you finally get to spend a little time with him and get to know him, you you find out he's not this broadly shaped character. Right. He's actually got some depth, and he's likable. They even say in the movie, it's like, I really want to dislike you, but you're such a cool guy. Yeah, yeah. And that's the case. I mean, that's true in that film. But in this, once you get to know him, you find out that uh, he is somebody who alienates and manipulates his friends and uh, his family members, and he's not that likable. He ruins your life. He's this washed-up rocker who... Uh, you know, is all sorts of trouble for somebody who's just trying to do their job. Well, it's interesting because it, it should be noted that, that both versions of this character are, are in different places. And forgetting Sarah Marshall, the, the Out of Snow character, is, is clean, is rehabbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Getting to the Greek, he has suffered since, a, he has fallen off the wagon mm-hmm. since the events of Forgetting Sarah Marshall. So the character is, is radically different. Uh, so he's not sort of the laid back like funny cool guy in forgetting Sarah Marshall mm-hmm. um he i mean i guess he still kind of is but you add the drug addict thing on top of that which which drives most of his actions yeah and, and that's where i think the movie kind of uh, tapers off uh-huh. uh where it and this is the case with a lot of apato uh productions it gets too serious it it just does and it, it sort of um sticks to the drug addict aspect of out of snow and you know where, where that might have been kind of silly with just kind of some sight gags that you see uh, and I'll, I'll just say the word the jeffrey sequence uh that that was you know that was silly enough and i could have laughed at it once the, you know and the scene would have been over and behind us but they really um there, there's another sequence where aldis asks jonah hill to uh, retrieve something for him mm-hmm. and it just goes on forever you know, and it, at one point, I mean, there are a few funny moments that come out of it, but then Aldis acts like such a, 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 a diva, I guess, uh, and it, it become, he has this outburst that's incredibly serious, and the whole tone of the movie just kind of turns uh, on its turns itself on its head and i don't know like once once that moment happened and i guess once they go to las vegas to visit aldous's mm-hmm. father played by cole meany uh of conair fame um <laughs> i don't know it just kind of lost me i guess and i i think that the entire las vegas sequence is is unbelievably hilarious mm-hmm. particularly the scene with the jeffrey mm-hmm. um which is just almost too classic to spoil um that that like I can unequivocally recommend the film based on the merits of that sequence. I feel like that is probably a classic comedy sequence, and if you get anything out of that movie, um, that would be it. But I, I would say when they reach Los Angeles, the film starts to lose me and sort of pumps the brakes and does become a bit too serious for me, too. Yeah, and I know this is a road movie, but good lord, I mean, did it take them that long to get to Los Angeles? You no, know? the stakes are pretty low. Yeah. It's just like, we've got to get to our plane, and then they inevitably do get to their plane. Yeah, and, you know... Or if they don't, they get another plane. And I think where... We're, I mean, the heart of this movie is obviously the relationship between uh, Alda Snow and Jonah Hill and the bond that they sort of develop, and I think that they achieve that to an extent... But uh, the relationship that I was interested in was Jonah Hill and his girlfriend, 
uh, who's uh, played by uh, Elizabeth Moss, who plays Peggy Olsen on Mad Men. And I think she's really solid here. She's well cast, and the conversations they have at the beginning of the movie are really endearing, and it seems like they're a a well-to-do couple, although she is a a soon-to-be doctor who's having to spend uh, her nights um, away from Jonah Hill at the hospital. And that's the kind of hurdle they have to jump. But it seems like otherwise they're incredibly happy and they're in love with each other and that kind of thing. And towards the end, I'm not going to spoil anything, they're presented a new obstacle uh, that they have to hurdle. And to me, it just, instead of being funny, and I'm talking about a specific sequence. Right. Instead of being funny, it just kind of comes across more as mean-spirited and ugly and it really didn't work for me. And this is part of that Los Angeles sequence that you're talking right. about. Right. I actually agree with that. I was kind of taken completely aback by that whole scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that I felt that in this film, the romantic relationships, both Jonah Hill with Elizabeth Moss and, and Russell Brand with uh, with Rose Byrne, even though I think Rose Byrne is very funny, I think that they, they were uh, almost totally perfunctory uh, to the main plot, mm-hmm. um, sort of padding, if you will, uh, and I wasn't really interested in either of these relationships. You know, I was there for like a manic road comedy, and uh, the the girlfriend stuff mm-hmm. didn't work for me. Particularly, mm-hmm. I think uh, the latter developments with Rose Byrne, mm-hmm. I, I just didn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and would rather have seen. I mean, I guess that speaks to to uh, Aldous Snow's motivation mm-hmm. um, or his his depression, but it, it didn't really work for me. Yeah, it almost kind of reflected what we think really might be happening behind the scenes with celebrities that right. we see in the news, and it's like, why should we care about them? They're these incredibly privileged, mean people. You know what I mean? And it's I don't know. I, I don't think that that necessarily lends itself to become appealing characters in a feature-length movie. Uh-huh. Uh, so, I, you know, and again, I mean, going back to that Vegas sequence, I finally found her name, uh, Carla Gallo, who plays Destiny. <laughs> I don't know, that just didn't work for me, the scene with her and Jonah Hill, you know? It just seemed like this sort of uh, forced moment where uh, you kind of get this member of the Apatow family, you, she, you give her her scene. She had a very memorable scene in Superbad. Uh, and the 40-year-old virgin. Who's she in that? She was the guy or the girl who um, insisted on on the toe thing, and she got was kicked she in really? the face. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and she was uh, on Undeclared. I'm pretty sure uh, that show. It, in fact, it also Wikipedia says that she also showed up in, in Forgetting Sarah Marshall as the girl who wanted to be gagged. Um, so she gets all of these like weird sexual roles in these Apatow movies, I guess. Weird, yeah, and she was uh, she was good on Undeclared. She was one of the regular right. she was characters. good on Undeclared. Yeah, uh, but that's pretty... I think she was um, Jason Siegel's girl, ex-girlfriend, uh-huh. or Jason Siegel played her ex-long-distance I, boyfriend yeah, I think you're right. on that show. I think, yeah. Um, I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and again, okay, let's talk about Jason Siegel uh, quickly, uh, because... Obviously, he wrote and starred in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which spawned this movie, and you have to think that he had a lot to do with that concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, the better parts of this movie, or uh, some of the nice things that can be said about it, are due to Jason Siegel's influence, the songs in the movie, hmm. uh, most of which are written or co-written by Jason Siegel. I think they're good songs, actually. You know, <laughs> I think that they're listenable, and um, they're, they're, you know realistic i guess you could say right. and what's what's neat about them is 
they're written in their entirety. You don't really hear just like a hook or you know just a one one single verse or one uh, chord. You hear the entire songs they play throughout the movie, and you hear them repeated every now and then. Whether it's uh, you know the the song that he's been burned for, Aldous Snow, African Child, which is all sorts of terrible, and that's emphasized in the movie, or the clap, which is a re- equally hilarious song to me. Uh, that it seems the crowd uh, at the Today Show uh, misunderstands entirely. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. I, I liked him, and, and you know, I guess the more Jason Siegel on these productions, the better, don't you think? Well, yeah. According to Wikipedia, Jason Siegel was involved with writing the songs in this movie. Oh, he definitely was. Um, but also, like, so. It, and this is really interesting. Uh, Jarvis Cocker. I saw that. I stayed which is, for the credits. Did, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I, I didn't know that until just now. Um, no, the songs are really fun. Um, I almost wish that we had gotten more of them. They're per- perhaps throughout the movie and not all concentrated in the last 30 minutes. Yeah. Like I felt they were. Did you feel like Aldous Snow was uh, a believable rock star? Having never really hung out with one... Sort I, of, no, I mean, I, 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 I mean, like, I, I mean, perception like, of the audience. You know what I mean? Because we're meant to believe that this is like an A-list, right. legit leader but of this and, and then band. he comes back and, and gives this yeah, concert, this huge first concert, concert that so many people would be right. interested in. Uh, Did he pull that off? I don't know. They call him like a musician, right? You know, and to me, he comes He's, off as this like glam rock right. front He's, man. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't. I hadn't really thought about that until you asked. <laughs> um, I guess it never took me out of the movie. That's okay. what I'll say. Well, you know, what's his name? Jonah Hill is—he—he he has an infant sorrow poster right. in his house, and the first time we see him, he's in bed, or we see him with his girlfriend. He's—he's he's in bed, and he's wearing an infant sorrow T-shirt. Uh-huh. So, and he's in the music business, and he's serious about music. So, we're meant to uh, take this band seriously as like a legit rock band that has influence on pop culture and i don't know if i really do that um but oh, there's something i was going to ask you Corey, and it completely slipped my mind any anything else on your mind about this movie well i just want to say um we though we mentioned him earlier this movie is basically stolen completely from me by sean combs okay who is who's given a lot of really funny stuff to do mm-hmm. and does it very very well mm-hmm. Um, particularly in in the Las Vegas sequences, which I think are tremendously funny. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, he adds a lot to the movie. It's not just gimmicky casting, uh-huh. and, and I really, I, I really appreciated that that they wouldn't just go for the easy. So I mean, obviously he's playing off of your knowledge of him yeah. as as a figure, <laughs> but but he he does bring a lot to the role. I agree with you. Um, as a character, I'm not sure how how much I like him. Uh, by the end of it, and I'm not sure if we're even meant to, uh, but Diddy or Combs, he kind of he just trying to bring the funny here. He's trying right. to make us laugh, and I think he does uh, do that uh, for the most part. Uh, you know, one one sequence I really liked where is where Jonah Hill calls him, and we see uh, Diddy at his house, at his <laughs> own house, and his entire family yeah. is there, and they're all wearing they're all wearing Lakers Kobe too. Bryant yeah. jerseys, you know. And uh, there, you know, he's looking for string cheese in his refrigerator. And then once the scene is ending, it reveals that uh, they're about to all watch The Biggest Loser. <laughs> and he's going, "Daddy's favorite show, Daddy's favorite show." And I think that's hilarious because The Biggest Loser is my dad's favorite show, <laughs> and I completely identified with that. So I thought that was hilarious. Um, but oh, okay, I was going to say the funniest part, and this is just completely um, 
a, a throwaway thing to add, but um, I thought the funniest part in the movie is when uh, the first time we see Aldous Snow interact with Jonah Hill, and Jonah Hill's just kind of standing out on the terrace, mm-hmm. and Aldous Snow just kind of creeps up behind him, and he goes, Oi! I'm Aldous Snow, the rock star! <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like, that made me laugh, man. That made me laugh hard out loud, and I was the only one in the theater that was laughing. But, uh, you know, the left turn that the movie takes, and I'll say it really quickly, that you mentioned that we, we kind of both didn't really care for and thought it was kind of ugly. Uh, there was a girl behind me uh, who basically said what needed to be said. She, she just said, this is not where I thought this was going. <laughs> no, that's like, for sure. I was like, yeah, we kind of agree, you know, maybe in different ways, but it, uh, I totally agree with you. I mean, no, I, nothing offended me about it. Right, I, I mean, it's not... It was- it's not necessarily a problematic plot development. I don't think it's supported, though, by what we've seen of, I, I, I guess, the, the girlfriend character. That's mm-hmm. not really a spoiler to say that she's involved. Mm-hmm. Um, you, we just don't get enough of her to buy that. She's, yeah. yeah I, it just doesn't work. She it's, makes a decision that is very unbecoming of her character. Right. Uh, and, I, you know, even if it's spontaneous, it's one that I really don't think she would make anyway yeah it kind of it, it, yeah i just it just took me back completely mm-hmm. yeah and uh it, you you like the jeffrey sequence and i think a lot of other people are probably gonna uh, Man, agree, agree with you that i think i do think that's a classic yeah. comedy sequence it was funny it, it really was um but i i actually prefer if we're talking about another drug-induced comedy sequence i actually prefer the absinthe sequence oh man that was very funny yeah too. I, I thought that was hilarious just uh the the cut i guess uh-huh. after he orders the absinthe it is awesome it's just this really great stylistic choice that stoller makes and uh <laughs> you know i thought it was just a really hilarious uh sequence that's mainly in slow motion set to music that i can't remember but it's um it's a French language version of. That's right. Yeah. What is it? I can't remember, but you're right. It is French, and I remember thinking, I, "Oh man." I, I remember thinking this is a pretty inspired song choice. Yeah. And it was in French. Yeah. I don't remember. Well, we have uh, the break to remember, and if we if we can, then we'll we'll let folks know what that is. But uh, I guess you know we're we're, we're both kind of um, not really on the fence. We liked it, but we'd rather watch the 40 year old version i guess which was on usa last night which i watched nice. uh, before i went to bed and it was it was edited even edited it was great but uh when we come back not all is well with middle earth my friends so find out what news sent shockwaves throughout the hollywood and film geek community earlier this week this is aspect radio we hope you stick around i am going to tell her you should totally tell her i'm man. going to because I watched this movie called Liar Liar, and the message was don't lie. And that was a smart movie. 90.7. Welcome back to Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft, joined in studio as always with my co-host Ben Flanagan. On May 30th, auteur director Guillermo del Toro, best known for the Hellboy films and the Oscar-winning dark fantasy Pan's Labyrinth, announced his decision to depart the upcoming adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, citing persistent delays relating to the financial troubles of rights holder MGM. Though Del Toro will still be involved with the screenplays of the two films, his departure from the director's chair sent shockwaves through Hollywood, considering the 
high pedigree of the project being the prequel to the million the, to the billion dollar grossing the lord of the rings trilogy now the question lingers who will take the job uh, now ben are you sad to see del toro leave this project no i am not that's a resounding no not at all no well look i i respect guillermo del toro i think he's done some fine work uh but i don't think that it's close to the level of Peter Jackson and his abilities and what he did with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You know, um, I, I might have said this before, but uh, it, it doesn't make me sad because, I mean, if this trailer came out and it said, from the director of Hellboy 2 which comes is, The which Hobbit, is awesome. which is awesome, Hellboy I don't know. 2. It may be awesome, it may be mediocre with an awesome character and makeup design. Uh, that's how I feel about it. Uh, but I wasn't a huge fan of the Hellboy movies. I haven't Man, seen I Mimic, know. and I never finished Pan's Labyrinth. What do you mean you never finished? I never, I just, you know, just started it, I, and I just never got into it. I can't really understand that. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe I'll maybe I'll watch it. Maybe I'll finish it one of these days. Well, it's, it's All really I know awesome. is that I was disappointed when it won Best Cinematography in 2006. Well, I mean, I was too. Yeah. It didn't deserve that, but it's a good movie, nevertheless. Yeah. But look, no, I was not that upset. And I know that this is probably going to uh, upset a lot of the geek culture because they're in love with Guillermo del Toro. Um, but if anybody needs to direct this movie, it's Peter Jackson. Right. It is. And I don't understand why he doesn't just go ahead and do it. It seems like the only person that doesn't want to direct it might be Peter Jackson, which is uh, unfortunate because he's the only guy for the job based on what he did with Lord of the Rings. And he did it like nobody else could have. He understood it like nobody else uh, might have. So I don't understand why he doesn't just do it. And I know he's bound by some contracts, I think, with Warner Brothers where he can't... Uh, possibly can't direct it he says he will if he has to and plus he's bound to the second 1010 movie uh, which he hasn't what would you rather see the next 1010 movie which we haven't seen right we haven't seen an inkling of it or would you rather see a peter jackson directed hobbit i'm gonna go with the hobbit yeah yeah um look i you know as a big guillermo del toro fan i'm not really sad about this either um one, it does allow Peter Jackson to sort of finish what he started. And two, I am much, much more interested in seeing what Guillermo del Toro will do next uh, in a project of his own choosing, because I am such a big fan of The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, and I'd love to see a third Hellboy movie, though I don't think that's going to happen relatively soon. I wouldn't be surprised. I didn't think Part 2 would come out as quickly as it did. Well, that's true. You know, so... I think we'll jump I, to another studio. I think for the Del, third yeah. one. I think Del Toro is just in love with the Hellboy universe. Well, I don't blame him. It's awesome. Well, I mean, okay. So tell me really <laughs> quick. So really quickly, just kind of tell me what you love about Del Toro so much. I I think that this guy has he combines the best impulses of Tim Burton's tendency to go nuts with uh, with his art design, but also knows how to tell a story. And I think that the Devil's Backbone and and Pan's Labyrinth proved that without a doubt. Um, they're both so tightly plotted and, and, and really emotional stories. So you, you have the best of both worlds. You have this guy who, who knows what he's doing behind the camera, can create a great-looking film that is a little off-kilter, a little strange, uh, but also tells an emotional, relatable story. And I think that's, I mean, that makes him a very good choice for The Hobbit, but... Again, when he was announced for it, I was like, well, it's kind of a shame that we're not going to get, you know, a really 
high caliber follow-up to Pan's Labyrinth that, that was his original story mm-hmm. because I am a lot more interested in his original stuff. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and to, be, to be fair, the spin that he brings to something like Hellboy, which because uh, Guillermo del Toro is such a big H.P. Lovecraft fan, you get those really great impulses in the Hellboy movies. I really, really like that. Well, I think he's a guy that gets it. You know, I, yeah. th- I think he understands movies. He understands storytelling. And like you said, he's a big fan. Right. And I think that comes across more so uh, than being a great filmmaker. I think he has the tools. I, I kind of, I, I would liken him to maybe Robert Rodriguez, maybe a little bit more of a, a mature version of that. Somebody who's uber talented, somebody who understands movies and uh, has the tools and abilities and friends in the industry. Uh, a lot of people who are probably willing to work with him. Uh, and he's friends with a guy like Peter Jackson who will put him in a position to direct The Hobbit, a movie that uh, a lot of people find very important and would hope to be as good probably as the Lord of the Rings movie and at this point that's those standards are probably uh, a little too high they're irrational expectations mm-hmm. um, even maybe for Peter Jackson after after what he did with you know, the lovely bones and uh, King Kong which people found disappointing but I, I would I would probably I would probably guess that that's why Peter Jackson doesn't want to go back to the director's chair you know he doesn't want people comparing his work in Middle Earth you know the second go around to his to his first film, and but but coming off of two movies that are perceived as disappointing, even though King Kong at the time was a critical success and made a lot of money. I love that movie too. I mean, but now it's like you talk to people about King Kong and they're like, "Yo, so disappointing." I, I don't really understand that. I, I mm-hmm. thought it was very good. Yeah. Um, even though I think its impact has lessened for me, and you know, since it came out. Uh, so I mean, he's only made one movie. The Lovely Bones that has been rejected upon the time of its release, um, but boy, was the Lovely Bones rejected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if he needs to rehabilitate his uh, his character, I suppose, or his filmmaking ability just yet. Um, but if he's feeling the pressure, you know, maybe that's exactly why he doesn't want to come back. You know what I think the studio should do? I think that they should let passionate fans run the industry and I think that they should take a vote and see who should direct the Hobbit movie and basically say and basically say okay we'll do that and I think that more than likely they're gonna say we want Peter Jackson well, certainly. Um, and 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 the good news is nobody's going to say Brett Ratner or something. Somebody might. There are a lot of there are a lot of Rush Hour Two fans out there. Oh my god. Um, and Money Talks fans. Uh, but I've got the poster in my bedroom for Money Talks. For Money Talks. Yeah. Look. Okay, we talked about Betty White a couple of sure. weeks ago. Fans made the decision for her to host SNL. They they brought it up. They pushed for it, and then Lauren Michaels and NBC basically gave in and said, "Okay, let, let's let's try this. Let's do this little experiment." Turns out, it's its biggest rated show in months over right. a year. You know what I mean? So obviously, they knew they knew that it would work, and I think that this might be the case with The Hobbit. I think we know that Peter Jackson is the guy for this, and I think Peter Jackson probably knows that too. And and you're right, he probably just wants to leave that alone because look, he was in the zone with the first right. three movies because that's, he made them back sure. to back to back. You know, he he knew what he was doing, and now he's had all of these different things he wanted to do, like King Kong. I didn't really understand the decision to make King Kong. Right. It just it just felt unnecessary. It's. I mean, it was his dream project. He'd earned enough clout to do it. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing about the Lord of the Rings. 
I feel like Peter Jackson was on his A game for that because it was such a significant investment. Three films at the same time, you know, basically all the shooting was done before the first film was even out. Mm -hmm. So he had a lot to prove on those movies. With The Hobbit, people are going to see The Hobbit now that the Lord of the Rings trilogy is established, no matter who's in charge. It'd be nice if Peter Jackson did it. He doesn't have to because it's still going to make a ton of money. Um, and Peter Jackson has considerably less to prove with it. So maybe that, that explains his you know, reluctance, I guess, to step in. Mm -hmm. Because it's going to make money for him no matter what happens. Uh, as long as the movie is eventually completed. Which, given the current situation at MGM, seems far yeah. off. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it may never happen now. Uh, and it took long enough for them to secure the rights and finally... Uh, set this thing into motion and to development and what has turned out to be pre-production hell uh, or developmental hell. Uh, but, I mean, Corey, well, first of all, before before we uh, get to our big question, um, do you think that The Hobbit would work as two movies or would you want to see one Hobbit movie? I think it could work as two movies. I think that that might be a bit indulgent. Um, I mean, I, as, as, a, as a Tolkien fan... Mm -hmm. I probably would like to see two movies, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I, I, I don't know where they're going to break the story. Uh, it, the Hobbit certainly doesn't demand a multi-film epic like The Lord of the Rings, um, even though I'm sure it would be enjoyable. Do you think it's indulgent on the part of a Tolkien fan like Peter Jackson and somebody like Guillermo del Toro, or do you think it's indulgent on the part of the studio who just wants to reap those benefits of two separate movies? Um, on the studio, though, I'm sure that. Jackson and Del Toro were jumping at the bit to shove in more details, mm. and you know, as as a as a movie fan, I I do admit I do prefer the very detailed worlds that that I know that these two could create with The Hobbit. So I probably will not complain when inevitably two movies are released and it, they're very detailed, very uh, in depth. Well, explorations of Middle Earth. Well, look, why don't we give our top three ideal replacements for this job without picking Peter Jackson, the obvious choice. So, Corey, I mean, if you had your pick of the litter as to who should direct The Hobbit movie or movies, who would it be? Peter Weir. Okay, I've heard that name thrown yeah. out there, so uh, tell me why you think that would work. Well, I, th I think I'm just jonesing for another Peter Weir movie after Master and Commander, which mm -hmm. was seven years ago. But I think that if he proved anything with Master and Commander, it's that he has a mastery of special effects that do not overwhelm the story that he's trying to tell. And I love that movie, besides. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I, you know, I think the ideal Hobbit director is somebody like that, somebody who can who can balance the uh, what will be visually stunning special effects with you know legitimate storytelling yeah. i think that he's a good choice for that and he's capable of telling something on a grand scale on a grand scale that is important yeah and, and uh, is that your first choice that's my first well choice. who are the other two um well second and i think that this might be inevitably who they go with uh, is neil blomkamp of district nine uh who for the same reasons and and third is is one of yours is Sam Raimi, mm -hmm. uh, who was interested in the project and who was actually passed over in mm -hmm. favor of Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, uh, you know this. If Sam Raimi was going to make a large budgeted blockbuster movie, I would rather it be The Hobbit than Spider Man, uh, personally. And I know you're a huge Spider Man fan, at least of the first two movies. Right. Um, but I, I was never a huge fan, and it, it, I never really found that Sam Raimi touch in those movies uh, personally. 
I, it, the, the humor wasn't Raimi, the, the, the visuals weren't Raimi, and it just didn't really work for me. And I like Marvel, and I'm a Spider-Man guy, I guess you could say. Uh, but look, yes, I would like to see Sam Raimi handle this sort of darker material, uh, something like he did with Drag Me to Hell last year so successfully and what he's done uh, previously in his career. I don't really want to see uh, The Hobbit from the director of The Gift. <laughs> I'd rather see it from the director of, uh, obviously, Evil Dead 2. Uh, um, but otherwise, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing Gore Verbinski maybe hmm. tackle it. Uh, you know, he did. I think he did what he could with the Pirates movies, what he could with the scripts of the Pirates movies. I thought they all looked great. I thought the action sequences were fair uh, for the most part. I thought the second movie was putrid. I thought it was horrible, hmm. and I thought the third one sort of rebounded. But the first one's a pretty entertaining uh, two god knows why but two and a half hour uh summer action movie i think it worked and uh, had nice character development and it looked great and i think that he's capable of doing this too and if if they had to settle on one of these kind of go-to directors for hire with these large-scale hollywood projects i wouldn't mind gore verbinski of course he wouldn't be my first choice but i think it might be realistic now first choice i guess if i had if i had you know if we're talking ideally who would be good for this? I would say Tim Burton from the 1990s, uh, but we don't get that these days. Right. Uh, I think that if, if if I had heard in the 90s that they were prepping The Hobbit and Tim Burton was behind it, I would have been really excited about that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but we, you know, what can you say? I mean, Tim Burton's the guy who made Alice in Wonderland, a movie that again I have yet to see. But based on your reaction and other people that I know, I don't have much to look forward to. And look, I'm not a big fish fan, and uh, you know, I can take or leave Sweeney Todd. Uh, again, we we touched upon this a few weeks ago. Burton, I think, has lost his fastball, right. as we say here. So you know, whatever. But on to other news. Empire Magazine reports in an interview with Jonathan Nolan, brother of Christopher Nolan, that the third Batman movie under their supervision will not feature the Joker as its villain or as its character at all. And there's still no word on which villain the next movie will use, but Nolan, Jonathan Nolan, says that it won't be Victor Freeze, who is Mr. Freeze, last played by Arnold Schwarzenegger in Batman and Robin, uh, not to his full potential. But I'm still betting on Catwoman, or who I think would be the perfect uh, villain in Nolan's Gotham City. I think the Riddler would be great. But, uh, Corey, your thoughts on this news? Um, I think it's a great idea that they're not trying to recast the Joker. Um, there was some speculation that they would, um, but I mean, I think it's just best that they leave the Dark Knight and they leave Heath Ledger's sort of iconic performance as the Joker. I would say definitive performance as the Joker alone, uh, and not try to replicate that. That being said, as far as new villains, I think the Riddler would be perfect. Um, I'm not sold on Catwoman necessarily just because I hate the idea of shoehorning a love interest potentially in there as they always do with Catwoman. They just mm-hmm. can't have you know, Catwoman be Catwoman. They have to also have her be a love interest for Bruce Wayne, mm-hmm. and I, w- I would hope that they would resist that tendency. But I also think that um, Black Mask, a more obscure villain from the comics, would be a, would be a perfect villain. You know, maybe, but I think when they went a l- not totally but a little more obscure with Batman Begins uh-huh. with the Ra's al Ghul villain it didn't work for me it really mm. didn't and even the 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 uh, scarecrow i thought that they kind of flubbed that i thought they pulled that off better in the uh, on the cartoon which was a much more unrealistic depiction uh, which is what 
um, Nolan goes for is the realism here, but I really think that Nolan is perfect, and I think you're right. I think uh, Catwoman might be a cop-out just because, and they might be right to do this, they might not be. I think that they are probably eager to get a strong female presence in this universe, Warner Brothers probably especially, and they haven't really had that in the past two movies with Katie Holmes and Maggie Gyllenhaal playing the Rachel Dawes character. Mm -hmm. uh, but either way, um, <clears throat> I, you know, I was disappointed that there wasn't the closure that I was seeking with the Joker character in The Dark Knight. Uh, when you kind of just leave him hanging, literally, uh, that's the last we see of him. And I thought that that was unfortunate. You know, we might have even wanted to, a uh, spoiler alert, I kind of wanted to see maybe a shot of the Joker in Arkham Asylum or something like that, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, where we saw where he ended up or what happened to him. And we didn't, and again, yeah, you, it's a very dicey situation with Heath Ledger's passing, and nobody can duplicate what he did right. in that movie. It's legendary, and you can't, you can't do that. You can't really touch it. But if they had to recast it, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I think the character might be bigger than any actor. Uh, it's the Joker, okay? There, you know, other people have played him before, maybe not as well as Heath Ledger, but I think other people can play him in the future. But uh, there's some more news out there. The Hollywood Reporter reports that the Hurt Locker lead Jeremy Renner will play Marvel Comics character Hawkeye opposite Chris Evans in Captain America: The First Avenger. Renner would uh, Renner will join Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, Tony Stark, Chris Hemsworth as Thor, Chris Evans again as Captain America, Scarlett Johansson as the Black Widow, Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury, and Don Cheadle as War Machine in the upcoming Avengers movie. Um, some concept art for the Captain America costume also leaked last week. Now, Ben, did you see these, and uh, what do you think about all this? I did see them, and uh, I thought they were okay. Uh, you know, I've talked to some people about uh, what could happen with the Captain America suit. Um, and, I, you know, the, the, if you've seen the comic and you've seen what it looked like, I mean, you throw that in a live-action mm. uh, studio movie. If you just throw what's on the comic onto the screen... Uh, you're going to turn a lot of people away <laughs> from it. Right. They're not going to take it seriously, and superhero movies aren't really meant to be taken seriously, but it's just kind of a stupid costume <laughs> uh, live-action-wise. And they right. tried it back in, I think, the early 90s to make a Captain America movie that didn't uh, pan out so well. I think it went, I don't remember that. Yeah, it went straight to video, and they try they used so. that costume, and it just didn't work. Uh, just you know, look for it on IMDb. It's there. Hmm. I just remember being very disappointed with uh, the movie itself and the fact that it didn't reach theaters. I even knew at a young age that wasn't a good sign. Uh, but look, I think it looks fine. Uh, it To me, it looks kind of like a G.I. Joe character in a way. It mm -hmm. almost looks like Snake Eyes or something <laughs> like that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you're not really going to pull this costume off either way, but it doesn't look as bad as I really thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, what do you think about Jeremy Renner getting involved with the Avengers? I think it's interesting uh, that his next project after the success of The Hurt Locker wasn't a lead role mm -hmm. in a movie. And, I, you know, I, I think Jeremy Renner is probably a guy who's willing to take chances acting-wise, whether the, he's taking a chance, uh, you know, whether he's challenging himself as an actor with a Marvel Comics movie, we'll find out. But the fact that he's joining somebody who I think is appealing, like Chris Evans, I think he was well cast in this role. Sure. And um, what I've heard, Tommy Lee Jones is also a part of this cast. Yep. I think that's a good sign. Yeah, uh, I do too. So, I mean, if you can add talent like Jeremy Renner. And Hugo Weaving as the villain. Yeah. yeah. Is, is he going to be Red Skull? Red Skull. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, look. That's pretty awesome yeah, casting. That, that is good casting. All of it is. Um, but there's more casting news, I guess you could say. Uh, 
Neil McDonough has been cast mm-hmm. in the movie, and this is the uh, the blonde-haired guy that you might recognize from Band of Brothers and Walking Tall. Mm-hmm. Isn't he in Minority, Minority Report? Yeah, he's yeah. one of the cops in Minority Report. He's that guy that you recognize that uh, subsequently does mediocre and forgettable work in mediocre and forgettable movies. Um, Ouch. Well, I, you know, I think he's likable, and I think he's capable of good things. He just has yet to really make a great movie. But, uh, you know, again, you like Minority Report. Yeah, I love, totally. love Minority Report. I don't know if you like it because of Neil McDonough. <laughs> He's a major reason. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I bet he is. Well, uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll throw out some DVD picks, count the box office numbers, and tell you what's playing at the Bama Theater next Tuesday. Are you hungry? I know I'm okay right now. Thank you. I must be angry at the baby whenever it steals your food. I'm like, oh, it's mine, not yours. But, you know... Because your family, you guys share. <laughs> Money points ever. Here on Aspect Radio, <clears throat> Ben Flanagan, Corey Crafts across from me. Uh, we're here to give you some DVD picks. And before we do that, Corey, uh, I think it would be appropriate for us to pay just a little bit of tribute to a recent passing uh, over the past week that we didn't get to talk about last week, obviously, and that's Dennis Hopper, um, who died at, I think, 74 years old. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, of uh, prostate cancer, which is, you know, sad news. I mean, the guy obviously lived a a life full of, you know, drugs and alcohol, that kind of deal. You know, a lot of people thought he wasn't really right to begin with. Um, and, yeah, he, he did. It was a life of excess, perhaps. But he did a lot of great work on the screen and behind the camera, too. So it's a sad a sad passing in uh, the Hollywood world. Um, but I thought we might be able to throw out a couple of Dennis Hopper recommendations. So, I mean, do you have a favorite Dennis Hopper performance? I mean, I think the, the iconic or his most iconic performances in David Lynch's Blue Velvet mm-hmm. as the complete psychopath Frank Booth. Um, that's probably my favorite performance of his, but you also can't discount his smaller role in Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. uh, in which he plays a sort of uh, drug-addled journalist uh, who is infatuated with Marlon Brando's Colonel Kurtz uh, and imparts some measure of wisdom perhaps to uh, Martin Sheen's character uh, in the in the final minutes or final half hour I'd say of the movie mm-hmm. um, you know you've got Hoosiers obviously you've got uh, for just kind of looking up the uh, filmography um, Easy Rider yeah Easy Rider I think is another obvious choice it's very small role but really great monologue and true romance right a lot of people point to um Red Rock Rest, uh, West, I think, is an underrated movie, also starring Nicolas Cage, which I think ended up being a TV movie, but he plays a hitman. Uh, I think that's a really solid, small movie. But look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it. it's my favorite uh, Dennis Hopper performance, other than you know maybe the ones that you've mentioned so far. Speed from 1994, The Bomber and Speed. Right. I mean, you just kind of 
look, it, it, it might have been a risk casting somebody like Dennis Hopper in a big uh, Hollywood action movie, but they just kind of let him do his thing. They let Dennis Hopper be Dennis Hopper in it, and he's a ton of fun yeah. interacting it with... It totally worked. Yeah, with Keanu on the phone. I thought it was great. And also, just to kind of throw it out there, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie called uh, The River's Edge or River's Edge. I haven't actually. I've heard um, of it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a pretty good movie. Also starring Keanu Reeves, <laughs> uh, but really what um i love so much about the performance this is from 1986 is he often in the movie plays opposite crispin glover in one of the greatest weirdest crispin glover roles of all time <laughs> uh and just let me click on the name really quick to make sure i remember crispin glover's name in the movie it's lane lane but often he refers to uh dennis hopper's character whose name is feck and he's always like feck Feck, what are you doing, Feck? And he really gives Crispin Glover so many great opportunities to be so bizarre. And, of course, Dennis Hopper as the villain in Waterworld. I forgot about that. Who can forget that? And he's actually pretty good in that movie, that mm-hmm. movie, which is otherwise. Cause he, he, um, but anyway, so long, Dennis Hopper. We appreciate the fine work that you did. But on to our uh, other DVD picks, Corey. Uh, kind of a slow week yeah. again. Um but um, you you do have the opportunity to check out 2010's best movie so far, in my opinion, when it comes out on DVD and Blu-ray. Kick-Ass is now on DVD yet, is it? Oh, man. Don't even... <laughs> Come on. That's not even something that I would... Uh, I was talking about Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island, uh, which we've discussed, I would think, at length on the show already, so I won't linger, other than, other than to say that if you didn't get our recommendation before, we certainly do recommend it. Um, and it contains perhaps one of Leonardo DiCaprio's best performances. Uh, it's a very, very good psychological thriller, if somehow you've avoided hearing about it and still listen to our show. Yeah, no, look, I, <laughs> I, I agree with you. It is um, the best movie of the year so far, and it's Scorsese back in top form, so no, I totally agree. But like you said, it's a pretty thin week. Does that do it for the newer That basically releases? does it. I, I can't really recommend From Paris with Love. Uh, which is bad. So. <laughs> well, uh, I've got Tetro on uh, Blu-ray nice. from Netflix, and I can't say that I can't wait to see it, uh, <laughs> but look, it's it's a Coppola movie, it's a new one, and it stars Vincent Gallo, an actor and director that I've been interested in for, for many years, uh, so I'm always, I'm always up for what uh, those two guys have to offer, so I'll watch that, and uh, to break away from movies and throw a little TV in there in honor of our friend Matt Scalici, uh, <clears throat> the TV monger. Um, I am uh, going through Lost. I'm starting pretty from pretty early. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm actually starting from season two. Oh, okay. You're not doing season one. Yeah. You know. I mean, it is like the best season. Yeah, I'll get around of the to show. It. it. But it's basically what's available to me. Sure. I um, gotcha. My friend, he's got seasons two, three, and four, and I was okay. like, you know, I started this show by jumping in the middle of it, and I'll just do it again. Right. And, I, you know, I started season two, and a lot of people refer to it as uh, the worst season of Lost. Nope, not than, anymore. Other, other than season six, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but uh, I think it started with a bang, man. No, the, the first couple episodes are really good. Yeah, especially uh, with the Desmond character. It does have something of a of a dip in the middle, but is, what are you going to do? Is this the Biling season? No, that's, just, that's season three. Okay, well, I've got that to look forward to. I hear that's the worst episode of all It's time. the worst episode, but then the second half of season three is pretty much consistently amazing, culminating in the best episode of the series. 
the season three finale. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, that's through the looking glass, right? Right. And I hear that a lot of people refer to the constant as the best episode of the series. Uh, if you're a Desmond fan, and I are like you Desmond. not a Desmond fan? I like Desmond a lot, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't call myself not a Desmond wow. fan. But, but <laughs> the season three finale, and you'll understand that. You'll understand why I say that it's the best episode know of the what show. Happens. Okay. Well, yeah. it's the best episode of the show. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll check it out. I, I've heard that too. I've heard that. Um, but look, I you know so far. Desmond might be my favorite character on Lost, you know. I think he's awesome. Yeah, he's he, I mean he is awesome, yeah. but but um you know actually I don't want I don't want to really talk about season 6. Okay, let's not. It, 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 I I think I'll be better off pretending it didn't happen and like writing my own ending. Well, speaking of pretending it didn't happen, Sex in the City 2 had a strong start last Thursday finishing with a solid 14.2 million dollar one day total, but it actually kind of petered out. To finish the holiday weekend, which uh, I say just 51 million, but it was projected to kind of reach the 70s, right. maybe, and it finished third behind Shrek Forever after at 57 million with a 147 million dollar cum. No surprise there. And Prince of Persia with a rather lukewarm 38.7 million dollars in third place. Uh- I'll tell you why. Uh-huh. Because Prince of Persia is terrible. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, so you got around to seeing it. Yeah, I did. And and it, I I don't know if I should open this can of worms since we're already near the end of the show. Mm-hmm. But what is going on with the box office this year when we're into June and Alice in Wonderland is still the highest grossing movie? Uh, and it finished number eleven last week, I think, or uh, something I, like that. Yeah, I'm sure it's still yeah. playing strong in some three yeah. D screens out there, but. I mean, the studios have got to be panicking at this point. That uh, you know, I don't. I don't know that Robin Hood was ever expected to break the bank necessarily, but Iron Man Two is not really playing as strong as they thought it would. Uh, Prince of Persia is totally mediocre, and Sex and the City Two, despite a strong start, is not playing well at all. The only thing that is performing, I think, alongside along expectations is the Shrek movie. Yeah. Which is also very bad. Yeah. So I mean I don't know if it's just this slate of movies or if maybe we'll have to wait for Toy Story Three and Eclipse to sort of, you know, put the energy back into the summer, but but people are I don't know, they're not responding to well, the slate look, of summer we, movies. We we anticipated a weak summer right, well, uh, based on the slate yeah. so I mean uh, I think the box office is obviously a reflection of that but it does look like Iron Man is probably going to clear 300 million it'll uh, probably be the highest grossing movie of the year it'll probably like until I mean I don't mean total right uh, but it'll probably exceed Alice in Wonderland uh, in the next two weeks hmm. Alice in Wonderland is at 333 okay, well. and and Iron Man 2 is knocking on the door of 300 so what do you think uh, Give me to the Greek flops this weekend I don't I wouldn't say it flops mm-hmm. um, it's not going to do forgetting Sarah Marshall numbers mm-hmm. it'll probably top out unless it just catches on with people in the 60 the 60 to 70 million is that not range. where forgetting Sarah Marshall ended up that, that's possible yeah I don't I don't know but um, I don't think it's going to be as popular as that at all. I, I don't think it is either. I talked to a friend of mine last night after I saw the movie who, you know, is like a great, he's like a great reflection of, you know, the mainstream audience and what they sort of move towards. Uh-huh. And uh, I, you know, was chatting with him on Facebook and he said, just saw Get Me to the Greek, loved it, and all kept all caps. So, really? Yeah, so maybe you know, folks like him who uh, see every movie out there will venture back for it in the word of mouth. I think the word of mouth on it would probably be pretty solid. Yeah, I, well, okay, forgetting Sarah Marshall growth 63 million, mm-hmm. so if, if Get Him to the Greek matches that, they've got to figure that to be 
somewhat of a success. Yeah, overachieving. Right. I would say. Uh, though this is a summer movie, and maybe they have separate expectations. Mm-hmm. Well, um, who knows? Yeah, who knows? But uh, opening nationwide in, in Tuscaloosa, the God Hollywood 16 is Get Him to the Greek, which we just reviewed with Jonah Hill and Russell Brand, Marmaduke, starring Owen Wilson, George Lopez, and Emma Stone. Splice, starring Adrian Brody and Sarah Polley, and maybe we should have reviewed that. Who knows? Uh, yeah. But also Killers with Ashton Kutcher and Katherine Heigl. Um, I just I don't know what to say about that. Uh, also keep an eye out for the Bamara House Summer Movie Series, which opens with the Noah Baumbach comedy Greenberg, playing next Tuesday, June 8th at 8 p.m. at the Bama Theater. I'm pumped. Yeah, well, you've only got one shot, so make it count. Eight o'clock on Tuesday is your only chance yeah. to see it. So, now if you have any feedback, you can email us at ninety point seven movies at gmail dot com. If you feel we've missed something or you have any suggestions as to films we can review or topics we can discuss, please do email us. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at aspect radio or twitter dot com slash aspect radio. We might even read a comment or two on the air, so keep them coming. Yeah, and you know we're about I don't know twelve episodes in, and we have yet to read a comment on the air. Except so come for on, maybe, guys. yeah, except for maybe one my brother yeah. sent to us uh, while he was in town or something like that. <laughs> uh, but we will podcast this in other episodes of the show. You can find those on our blog at aspectradio.tumblr.com. Tumblr spelled T-U-M-B-L-R. We'll also post this podcast on Twitter and Facebook, and you can catch my and Corey's columns in Tusk Magazine, found in every Friday edition of the Tuscaloosa News. And be sure to tune in next time when we finally begin our journey into the films we haven't seen on the original AFI 100 list. And we're going to start, we promise, next week with the John Houston Humphrey Bogart adventure, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for Corey Kraft, I'm Ben Flanagan. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going home now. I apologize for what I said. I hope you can forget it, but I'm going home right now.